Well, good morning, church, and good morning to Parker County. We see you out there, and also to Converge, and to all those folks streaming with us. Uh, would everyone please take a copy of the sermon notes and also your scripture? You know, in 1977, I was just out of seminary, and Lynn and I had just been married. Alex Haley's uh, very, very popular book, Roots, came out, and uh, uh, it became a miniseries. In fact, I can't recall a miniseries before uh, Roots came out, and it was about Kunta Kinta, which was an African who was taken from his tribe and brought as a slave to the U.S., and it traced his genealogy. It was actually a, a uh, sensation, a cultural sensation, if some of you were around in 1977. It, it was a sensation to me because I got to thinking, my name is Kitchens, and I, that's kind of a weird name. If you knew how many different names I've been called throughout my life, bathroom, <laughs> belfry, front porch. I mean, just give me a break, folks. I don't know how I got my name. So I went to my grandfather, grandpa, we called him. And I can remember leaning up against the 49 Chevy and he was standing right here. He had his, he had a Western hat on. He was a farmer. And I said, hey, grandpa, you know, where did the name Kitchens come from? What, where did we come from? Who are we? And long pause. And he said, you know, son, I don't know. And I remember looking up at him thinking, man, he's a handsome guy. I look just like him. But I didn't think anything about what he was saying. He, did, he didn't know. My grandfather didn't really know beyond his, great, his grandfather where the kitchen's name came from and how we came into the country and settled in the area we settled in. What's kind of interesting about that is if from the spiritual dimension this morning we were to ask ourselves, okay, where do we come from? Uh, some of us would know in the room biologically. Because we have two trees in our lives. There's a biological tree, family tree, and we also have a spiritual family tree. Most of us wouldn't know much about our biological family tree, but we might know almost nothing about our spiritual family tree, our spiritual roots, where we come from, what we're all about, what we believe. And that's what this series is about. Six weeks we're going to look at our spiritual genealogy, so to speak, where we come from spiritually. It's called the Reformation. October... Actually, October the 31st, 1517. Now, this is 2017, and that's why we're studying it on this fall. 500 years ago, the Reformation officially launched, and we'll talk more about that over the weeks. But October the 31st, in 1517, we called it the Reformation. On that day, our faith was forged and redirected in an amazing way. It started a revolution of Monday morning application that we actually take for granted. We don't really understand. I confess I didn't until I studied it more over the last two years. I am married today to Lynn because of the Reformation. Seriously. We have baptismals in our different uh, worship centers at the West Campus. At the West Campus, they had a, actually a horse trough for a while. Now I think we've got a, a, a good baptismal out there, so to speak. But uh, in Converge, there's a baptismal. There's a baptismal here in the, in the Fort Worth Sanctuary. That's because of the Reformation. We sang these pretty powerful songs in our different venues this morning because of the Reformation. Prior to that, there was no participation in the church. Uh, no singing, just sit and soak, if you will. There's, there are no paintings or gold-gilded things or fancy, fancy uh, tapestries in the churches today, our church. Why? All that's because of the Reformation. So I want to welcome you to Roots. And I want us to study together. Would you, as I said, take out your sermon notes? This is a, each of these sermons has two parts. There's a history lesson, 
and there's also a theological lesson. The history lesson, I know some of you, I know what kind of grades you made in history, so I'm asking you to sit up and pay attention. Will you please? And I'll give you a quiz at the end of, actually, I won't do that. What was the world like? What was the world like in the 16th century, in, say, 1500 A.D.? Let me tell you what it was like in America. The buffalo from northern Dakota, southern Dakota, all the way to Mexico were multiplying by the millions. The country was replete with grass and wild game. The Indian tribes from the Dakotas all the way through the Cherokee and Texas were also growing and, and there was abundance of all the tribes. Across the pond, that was not true. The period from 1200 to 1500 is called the late medieval period. And there's reasons for that. But that, that period of time, according to your sermon notes, life in Europe was an upheaval, uh, preparing for great change. It was like a pressure cooker. Let me note a few things. For one, the Black Plague had wiped out in Eurasia between 75 and 200 million people. It peaked in 1353 and continued all the way till the first part of 1500, 15th century. Uh, can you imagine what that would be like? Every family everywhere lost loved ones. Rich and poor, it didn't matter. And to this day, they're not totally sure. This is not the bubonic plague. This was the black plague. They're not totally sure what caused that plague. At the same time, there was a flowering renaissance in Europe, meaning people were beginning to enjoy life a little more. The feudal system was breaking down, and so the peasants who were living around the, the lords who owned all this property because kings had given it to them were beginning to move to the city. And so universities were actually beginning to crop up, even though at the beginning of this only 3% of the populace of Europe could actually read. So there were universities popping up all over, and that was beginning to bring about this renaissance. And then the Gutenberg Press came along in 1455, which is totally stunning and changed everything. In fact, I would say the one big element of this whole period of time was the press, because up until that point, everything was handwritten and took so long to put it in place. So pressure cooker in all of Europe was happening. And then the church had gradually drifted and become corrupt and insensitive to the people of the land. Roman Catholicism in 1500 owned the majority of Europe. 10% of everything every individual earned each year, 10% tax, even the poorest peasant paid tax in Europe. Everyone's income. It filled the coffers of the wealthy bishops. Bishops, by the way, were frequently political leaders of the cities. The separation of church and state, which we understand today, was not the case in those days. And so the more money came in, the richer the bishops became. Of course, the richer the pope became. In fact, in that period of time, some people would say in the Latin, the church was potentas, um, potentas, which means potent. But the early reformers and those who was, were reading the New Testament and the life of Jesus would say the church should be paupertas, paupers, uh, caring for the poor and needy. But the church was failing to do that tremendously. Now, I want to stop here because over the next six weeks, one thing we're absolutely not going to do is bash Catholicism. The background of the Reformation is Catholicism, no question about it. In fact, I just heard the Cardinal of New York say in the documentary a couple of days ago that Roman Catholicism knows farewell what took place in this period in human history, and they're not 
necessarily proud of that. We have Catholic friends. I do not agree with the theology, especially the salvific theology of Roman Catholicism, but they're friends and loved ones, and they do wonderful things in our world, so this is not going to be. So don't send me emails about how you disagree with this or that. Just give me a break. We all understand that, so does Catholicism. Don't want to bash it. I do have one defense of Catholicism in that area, and this is this. Their worldview was different in those days. They were ambassadors for Jesus. And as the Pope and as the bishops and, and uh, cardinals across the land took care of the needs of the people, which they didn't do very well, uh, they, they sensed that they were ambassadors, and ambassadors for the King of Kings lived well. You see what I mean? They, they, they weren't paupers. They shouldn't be representing Jesus as vicars of the earth and live in, in poverty. That was a different worldview. The reformers thought quite differently. So in respect to Catholicism and Roman Catholicism in those days, their view was we represent Jesus, and Jesus is the king of kings. You know, I understand that. I do. Now, at this time, by the way, anytime there are excesses, anytime there's such power, there are always excesses, and that's what we see in history. But at this time, Pope Leo X was in Rome, and he decided, he had a vision to build St. Peter's Basilica. If you've ever been there, you know what a magnificent piece of work St. Peter's Basilica is. The problem, Leo didn't have any money. So that's a bummer. And he, he put into place indulgences. And an indulgence is a document you can purchase that would get one of your loved ones out of purgatory or out of, well, hell may be a little too late, but out of purgatory. And so across the country, um, indulgences were sold to fill the coffers of Pope Leo X to build St. Peter's Basilica. If you've been there today, it was built with indulgences. And I'll tell you more about that later. The salvation was the issue in this period of time for, these, for the Reformation itself. The teaching on how one is saved and what, what is the Christian life had departed uh, from the church in those days. In fact, the church said, and I'll quote, Roman Catholic Church in 1510 said this, that salvation is by self. It's self-salvation, which means you can earn it. There's one council a few hundred years before called the Laternkini Council, which said this, Roman Catholic Council, you can go to heaven if you will, take the Lord's table, and every time you come to the Lord's table, you're re-executing, re-crucifying Jesus. You must confess your sins once a year. You must attend church either on Christmas or Easter, at least one of those. You must memorize the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments, and you can go to heaven. That was the rule of the church in those days. In fact, John Dunn Scotus writes this. For those who thought that was pretty austere, he wanted to be very lenient with the church. He was a, he was a um, Roman Catholic theologian. He writes this. It's so interesting. He said this, If one wants to have salvation... At least one utterly selfless act had to be performed at least once in a person's life for them to go to heaven. That's interesting. You can understand what was brewing behind the scenes. The church had become insensitive, corrupt, and no longer really teaching what's truth. Tremendous fear in the land in those days. Um, Fear because individuals didn't really know how they're saved. They didn't understand what the Word of God said. They didn't actually have the Word of God in a sense. There was despair. Uh, folks did not, know, did not know how 
to access God. In, 14, in the 14th century, 15th and 16th century, things were very difficult in Europe. The Indians and buffalo had it well over here. It was very, very difficult in Europe. Voices began to clamor for some kind of change, some reformation. We are Protestants. Most of us in the room are Protestants. That means protest. Protest. There is this Latin phrase, post tenebris lux. It means after the darkness, light. And then your second point in your sermon notes, a new light begins to shine on Germany. In 1483, the conversion of Martin Luther takes place. But in 1483, Martin Luther is born. He had a stormy calling from God to sacrifice his life for the gospel. In fact, uh, here's a shot of Germany on your screen, uh, uh, ancient Germany in that period of time. And uh, so much was going on in Germany. In Erfurt, Germany, there was this couple, Hans and Marguerite Luther. Now, Hans was a peasant, as most people were in those days, but he connected with a partner at some point in his life, and they ended up being a part of a copper smelting. And so Hans actually became a very well-to-do man. His son, Martin Luther, he was a pretty brilliant guy, obviously, but he wanted Martin to be a lawyer. Why? Because he needed a lawyer for the mining business. He wanted his son to be a lawyer. Uh, he was not a priest. Luther was not a priest at this point in his life. He was studying law. He knew German, excuse me, he knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, uh, but he was studying to be a lawyer. Now, his father's will was for him to be a lawyer, but his heavenly father's will was quite different. And it plays out in Luther's life in such an interesting way. He was a man with a very, very sensitive conscience. Do you have a sensitive conscience? And do you, do you hear some voice inside your head say when you sin, uh, that's not right? Uh, that would not please God? Luther had a very sensitive conscience. In fact, when he be finally became a priest, it's said that sometimes he would take confession five hours a day. And the stuff he was confessing is just picky and stuff that even God wasn't unhappy with. He had this very sensitive spirit. One night... From Erfurt, his home, going to the university, he was caught in a storm, a horrible lightning storm. And the sensitive conscience inside Martin Luther was married to something else. In the churches in those days, there, was, there were carvings of Jesus from the book of the Revelation in judgment. On one side of Jesus were the stars of grace in heaven. On the other side was a sword. And if you cross God, you perish. In the middle of this storm, lightning is striking everywhere. Rain is coming down torrential. He's trapped alone in the storm in the forest. He falls down on his knees and says, God, if you will not take my life, if you'll let me live, I will join the priesthood. And that's the story where Martin Luther's father said lawyer, but the Heavenly Father said, no, you're going to follow me. I'm going to use you in a completely different way. He entered the monastery not long after that and spent two years in the monastery. Two years learning about uh, what it's like to be a priest. It was very hard up at 4 o'clock in the morning. By the way, if, if you ever studied the monasteries in those days, the life was very, very strident and difficult. And, and he, he did that, but he had no relief from his conscience. 
through all of that. In two years, he was released out of the monastery. He, he went to Wittenberg, and he, had his first mass, he served his first Mass there. And he says in some of his writings, even when he did Mass, the, the table, communion, the sacraments, he had no peace inside him. His conscience was still at odds with him inside. It's pretty amazing. So he ends up being sent to Rome. Still with me, everybody? He's sent to Rome uh, by his uh, uh, monsignor because he got sick and tired of listening to Luther's confessions all day every day. <laughs> he sends him from Wittenberg to Rome. By the way, Martin Luther walked 800 miles to get to Rome. Walked 800 miles. That's like walking from here to almost Chicago. When he got there, he thought he was going to find heaven on earth. This is where the papal throne is. This is where Leo is. He found hell on earth. The Pope had hired a gentleman by the name of Johannes Tetzel to sell indulgences all across uh, the land, all across Europe. And Tetzel would take um, acting troops, meaning individuals who were actors and actresses, and he'd take a huge red sheet which depicted fire and hell. And he'd come on a stage in a small village or in a larger town. And they'd set up in the center of the square. And they would wave this huge sheet that looked like fire. And actors and actresses behind it would be going up and down screaming because they were in hell. And then Tetzel would sell indulgences. Which I mentioned earlier, filled the coffers of the Pope and they built St. Peter's Basilica. It made Luther incredibly angry. This young priest saw exactly what was going on. And when he returned to Wittenberg, he became so angry. Well, and for point B under Roman number two in your sermon notes, the young reformer could not stay quiet. And so he hated the church's abuse and the greed, and he speaks out. In fact, he says, and it's in your sermon notes also, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. He wrote the 95 theses, and he, he nailed them to the Wittenberg door, the door of the church he was responsible for. Now, by the way, there's debate about whether he actually nailed the 95 theses there or not. That's not going to go into the debate. But, but here's the point. In those days, the church was the, the community bulletin board. And so when he's nailing these 95 statements on the bulletin board of the church for the, for the community to see, he wasn't intending to have a fight with the Pope. He was wanting some dialogue with the papacy and with the bishops, and um, because he felt like if Pope Leo knew what was going on in the kingdom, he would be totally opposed to it. In fact, he actually writes several times, if the Pope really has the authority to release someone from purgatory with money, why doesn't he just do it? Because if he loves people, why did he just free all those in hell and purgatory? And of course, the answer to that was that wasn't the point at all. These 95 theses were nailed to the Wittenberg door, and uh, many presses from the Gutenberg press were in the area, and so Luther did not even know that his 95 theses were taken down and pressed and printed, 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 and so soon they were spread all over. In fact, here's two of them. I want you to see this one. This is number 36. Any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt even without indulgence letters. In other words, you don't have to pay for indulgence, he said. If you just repent, God forgives you. 
Here's number 45. It's another one that's significant. Christians are to be taught that he who sees a needy man and passes him by yet gives money for an indulgence does not buy papal indulgences but buys the wrath of God. Only God would be angry at someone who passes a poor person but then tries to buy someone out of hell. He thought it was illogical, it was not biblical, etc. What he really wanted to do was revive the dormant church. That was really the intention here. What happened? Well, the Pope found out about it. So did the cardinal. And he is called to a trial for heresy. And in those days, heresy got you burned alive. So he comes to the Diet of Worms. And he there, by the way, the emperor was there in the room. The emperor, this shows you the church and state connection. The emperor was in the room and the papal representatives were in the room. And they debated with Martin Luther his heretical position that the church did not have full authority over our lives. He was asked to recant and sent away, I believe it was overnight as I recall. And he comes back the next day and they ask him one final time to repent of his position and his heresy. And and listen to what he says. Just listen to this. Martin Luther said to the tribunal, there in the Diet of Worms, here I stand. I can do no other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Amazing. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Normally he would have been burned alive. For some reason they released him from the tribunal and he at night fled in a coach, actually a a wagon with an, another young priest. And in the middle of the night, an amazing sovereign thing happens. A gentleman named Friedrich of Saxony, an elector, for political reasons, captures him. Captures him. And releases the other young man, captures him, and takes him to the Wartburg Castle, which Friedrich was responsible for, of course. And in the Wartburg Castle, here it is, for nine or ten months... Uh, By the way, they gave him the name Squire George, so even the servants in the castle did not know this is Martin Luther. Martin Luther was known all across Germany by this point and was hated by the Roman Catholics and revered by those who were realizing there needed to be a reformation of the church. The church needed to be reformed. In that nine or ten months, he wrote the first translated from uh, Greek and also from Latin, the Vulgate, and also from Hebrew, the very first German Bible. When he left there, they had the first German New Testament. By the way, that book, the, the, the uh, German Bible, was the best-selling Bible in uh, all of Germany three years later, four years later. It just became uh, something that revolutionized the people of Germany. He wrote the Bible, the Luther Bible. He was in his study for that nine months. He wrote it. When he returned finally safely to Wittenberg, Here's here's a very important thing for you to note. Everything you experience today in this worship experience was because of him. He said the church should sing. Until that point when you came to Mass, you didn't do anything but sit there. We should sing. He said preaching of the Word should be the center part of every worship experience. That's the New Testament, he said. He said that sacraments should be communion and baptism. Worshippers should participate. He did away with sacerdotalism. He did away with celibacy. Praise God. You heard about the priest who 
looked at the Bible and said, hey, I, I thought I was supposed to be celibate. It says here, celebrate, not celibate. <laughs> that was Martin Luther. He celebrated. He, had, he abolished the bishopry and all of that in that general area, and the Reformation began. This young priest literally changed everything the way we do it today. By the way, the, there's always a bottom line to every change, every conviction, uh, uh, every change. There's always got to be a conviction. Some reason an individual does this. And so I want to switch now into the premier tenet theologically of all the Reformation, and it's sola scriptura, scriptures alone. Luther's foundation was sola scriptura, the formal precept of the Reformation. What they wrestled with in that day was, where does the church's authority rest? What is, how does one know salvation? And where does the church's authority rest? Uh, he loved Romans 1, 16 and 17, which will come up on the screen. He says this, for I am, Paul says this, and, and Luther loved this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, not the tenets of the church. For everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and to the German, he would say, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What does sola scriptura mean? It's Latin. It means scripture alone. Scripture alone. Three things it means. The, number one, the Bible is the objective revelation from, from God, the only true source of authority and religious knowledge. The Bible is the only true source of authority and religious knowledge. This is all a debate over authority. The first tenet of the Reformation, the big word I'd want you to take away today, is the word authority. Where does the authority come from? Where does the truth come from? Sola was a polemic. When he says sola scriptura, what he meant was scriptures only, but he was telling you not just what he believed and the Reformation believed, but what they didn't believe. They did believe it was scripture plus anything else. The ancient Roman Catholic Church said scripture and the church were equal, actually Here's one theologian from that day. He writes this. The doctrine of Scripture was central to the Reformation. The Bible had become obscure in the medieval Roman Catholic Church after centuries of elevation of tradition and the papal office as the church's surest guide. The Pope was the surest guide of the church, not the New Testament. He goes on. Luther, through his own reading of the Bible before 1516, and then through the Greek and the Hebrew, led him to, the, to do away with tradition, to uh, bring into view the more obscure truths of the gospel from that day and rediscover the heart of truth in the scriptures. That's why he embraced so strongly 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which has been preached from this pulpit at least 100 times, which says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is the sure guide for the Christian. Our roots are really not the Reformation. The Reformation put us back in the soil of the New Testament. The New Testament is our soil. 
And Luther began that process. He loved Psalm 119.18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law, the word. He loved Proverbs 35. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. And I I love the quote. It's in your notes. A a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without the scripture. Question for you. What's your authority in in this life? Some of us, our authority, honestly, is our checkbook. Some of us, our authority is our education. I mean, we, we draw on that to direct our lives. We draw on our relationships. And, and if we're really honest, those things become our authority. Luther said, this is the authority, the inerrant word of God. And he roots us back in the New Testament. Just a, this is just a, a priest, a young man who finally stands up 500 years ago and says, enough. This cannot be of God. This is of God. This is of God. Second, the Bible alone is sufficient for reaching the lost and bringing man into a right relationship with God. Point, not works. Not not works. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What's the point here? This book is living And it penetrates into the heart of every one of us, speaks to us as God's own voice. The conscience conscience that Luther had, you know when it was finally at peace? When he believed the Scripture. When he believed the Scripture. The councils in those days all said, do this, do that, memorize this. Do that, give this, etc. All rules and laws. The Word of God does the work. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is a central passage for this fellowship here, Christ Chapel. For by grace, through faith, you're saved. Not of yourself. It's a gift from God. Why? So you won't boast. So you won't boast. In fact, the word says justification by faith comes out of sola scriptura. Our justification comes directly from the Bible. In fact, to believe that one can have eternal life apart from a personal relationship with Jesus, to believe that is like being a very hungry person who has no money and you decide to go to a very nice fish bar and you buy a big plate of oysters hoping that you'll find a pearl in one of those oysters to pay your way out of the restaurant. It's just not going to happen. It's not biblical. It's not truth. Now, as I said earlier, one thing I do not want to do is take advantage of any Roman Catholic friends. The Catholicism understands those ancient days and sees that clearly. But even in modern times, in 1992, Pope John Paul II writes this. He clearly states there are two modes of trans- transmission of salvation today in America. First, the Scriptures. Second, the church. He clearly says that. In fact, he comes right out and says it is the Pope in article um, on, in paragraph 81. The catechism explicitly says the divine revelation comes in two modes of transmission, the sacred scriptures and the holy tradition, which is directed by the papal office. So I would disagree with that. I would stay in, with my reformer friend, Martin Luther. 
I believe he was right. The third thing it does, Sola Scriptura, the Holy Scriptures are God's manual for daily practice of the Christian life. It's our practice. This is, this is, what, this is faith, in, faith in works, faith in practice. How do, we, how do I, as a Christian, every day function? Ancient Catholicism said celibacy. The New Testament says celebrate. In fact, Martin Luther wrote a pamphlet on marriage when he studied the New Testament on marriage, and it was printed and distributed all over. Well, it's a wonderful story. Uh, I think it was nine nuns in a nunnery were there, and they read Martin Luther's book on marriage. Um, and by the way, even in those days, the popes would uh, grant to bishops and to priests concubines. You pay for a concubine, and the pope would, the pope would grant you that privilege, which is pretty a seedy and underhanded thing to do, I would think, in the sense of allowing something that was totally wrong to Catholicism at the time to happen for money. But what Martin Luther said was, marriage is biblical. It's God's man should not be alone from the book of Genesis. And so the book was distributed, and there was this really fun story in the nunnery. I believe it was nine nuns, and they read it, and they decided to get out of the nunnery, but they couldn't. So what they did was they escaped in barrels that had codfish in them. I believe it was codfish. Can you imagine a woman getting to a barrel that had fish in it? Ew. Nine of them, I believe it was, got out. And Luther, because he had written on marriage and believed that celibacy was wrong, uh, if a pastor or a priest wanted to be married, he should. That's God, God's gift. He matched a priest with one of these nuns, eight of them, but there was one left. Katrina von Bora. In my readings of this, he actually wasn't in love with her. And maybe she was in love with him, but he wasn't with her at the time. But he decides if this was what God had told him to do as a priest, he was going to marry. He marries Katrina von Bora. And they have the most remarkable marriage. Six children, wonderful things happen. They came, she came to him out of a fish barrel. Uh, he says this. <laughs> That's how your wife came, wasn't it, men? Fish barrel? It is no small gift from God to find a wife who is, who is pious and easy to get along with. And I know all our wives are pious and easy to get along with. Matthew 4.4 says this, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. One of the reasons we have Bibles in the pew racks at all the venues, and we want you to take one. If you don't have a Bible, take one. Because we believe it's the practical guide, the manual for everyday living. Luther returned us to that reality, that truth. By the way, he's influenced America tremendously. We have today... Uh, the American Revolution, where we confront authority. Uh, the American Revolution comes partly out of the seeds that Luther did when the Reformation took place. The freedom of speech that we know today, partly from the Reformation. The priesthood of the believer coming out of the Reformation. Albert Moyer wrote this, When God's people cease to hear God's word, they cease to be God's people, and everything is lost. And that's what history shows us. Luther's sola scriptura was a return not to the church, but to return to the Word of God. Three quick applications. First, did you know that 60 churches a day close in America and 1,500 pastors leave their churches a week in America? A reformation needs to happen in our country. 
sola scriptura. We're so works-oriented in our churches today. We're so, grace is so lost, which we'll be studying next week, that uh, I, I contend a new reformation needs to happen in our churches. Secondly, imperfect people live in, who live in the will of God can still change the world. He was a very imperfect man. He changed the world. And finally, there's a salve for a human conscience and peace. I told my wife and I told the staff this morning, my big concern is that you would be here this morning. You would be listening to this sermon and you, have, you do not have a clear conscience. You would say, I feel like Martin Luther felt all those years ago. I stuff it down in certain ways, but I don't feel like I have peace with God. That's the secret to life. Peace with God. Paul says in Colossians 1, make peace by the blood of Christ. It's the gospel. When Martin Luther believed the gospel, peace just came over him. His life was changed. In Colossians 3.15, there's a peace that rules in our hearts when we know Christ. If you don't know Christ this morning, if you don't understand the truth of the New Testament, root yourself back in that. Understand who Christ is and what he's done for you. And you can have the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. A conscience bound to God's word. Thank you, Martin Luther. Pray with me. Lord, I do thank you for uh, an insignificant priest in the landscape of history who reminded us that really we should be rooted in your word, in biblical truth. And Lord, I know the church has authority. Your word gives authority. Elders and deacons and teachers, men and women, uh, throughout the last 500 years have just faithfully served you. And, but your word gives us the authority. We, we don't rule over it. May that continually to be prominent in our understanding as Christ followers, Lord. I ask you to bless the study. Remind us of our heritage. It's rich. We come from a rich heritage of sacrifice and truth. May we stand firmly on it and see a new reformation in our lives and in our world. And I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.